0: Welcome back to the channel. In the last installment of Randomized Control Trials 101, we covered Kaplan-Meier curves, time to event endpoints, two to one randomization, blinding and concealment, In this installment of randomized control trials 101 part two, we're going to talk about surrogate endpoints. We're going to talk about control arm quality, post-protocol care, hopefully non-inferiority, superiority designs, equivalence designs, drug dosing. All right, let's see how much of that we actually can get through and literally all my notes say are just those headings that I read to you and and that's about all I got. So let's see what we're going to come up with endpoints. I think when people talk about the blinding of a study or the study design, it's intrinsically tied to the endpoint you look at. So, of course, a randomized control trial, you take a bunch of people and you randomly assign them to, for the simplicity's sake, a therapy. But it could also be a therapeutic strategy. It could be a diagnostic test. And you go on to measure some outcome. Now, there's a class of outcomes that intrinsically matters to people. Those are clinical endpoints like living longer and living better, overall survival and health related quality of life. But if you use health-related quality of life, you have to measure it for the course of the cancer journey, the course of the patient's journey. You can't, just memorize, you can't just measure it for the first few months after the initiation of the randomized trial. That's going to give you a skewed portrait. One can imagine that if you randomize somebody to using two drugs versus one drug in a space and only measure health-related quality of life at the beginning of the journey, well, the two drugs might do better because they have a deeper response and and they tend to look good up front, But when you exhaust those true drugs, you might not have anything left in your medicine bag. And the person who got one drug might get a second drug later. So they might have a better journey overall. The analogy I like to use is, if you go camping on a long hike, or if you go on a marathon, you don't just wanna know your quality of life in the first few miles. That might be okay. You wanna know your quality of life throughout the whole journey. And that is the same. So clinical endpoints, overall survival, health-related quality of life, we've written about the duration in a paper by Alison Haslam, I think, in Gemma Network Open. Those are clinical outcomes that intrinsically matter to people. But many randomized clinical trials don't use a clinical outcome, they use a surrogate outcome. A surrogate outcome, as my friend and colleague, Adam Sifu likes to say, is an endpoint the patient didn't know matter until the doctor told them that it mattered. Like your hemoglobin A1C, or even your blood pressure, or your cholesterol levels, or the size of the tumor on a CAT scan. And that's why, strictly speaking, progression-free survival, which we discussed in the last video, is the time until one of four things happen, the patient passes away, that's unfortunate, hopefully that doesn't happen, There are new lesions on the scans. That's also unfortunate, lesions that weren't there at baseline. The scans that you measured at baseline are 20% bigger than when you started because it steadily grew. That's unfortunate, but it is progression. Or if somebody had tumor shrinkage, it's 20% from the nadir value, from the smallest it ever was. So PFS is the time to event composite endpoint. Now that's an endpoint that doesn't intrinsically matter to people because nobody walks around at 119% says I feel fine, and at 121% says, oh, now I feel terrible. The size cutoff is arbitrary, and maybe in these videos or in other videos I've explained where these size cutoffs come from. It comes from a dinner party at Charlie Mortel's house in Mayo Clinic, but we'll leave that for another day. Surrogate outcomes also include things like your A1C level or your cholesterol level, or even moving the time A procedure may happen as a surrogate outcome. We accelerated the time to an operation. Well, but do people live longer or live better? Well, I don't know. So that's also potentially a surrogate outcome. Recently, hospitalization, which has always been thought of as a clinical outcome, some have argued that there's a discordance between hospitalization and death. I think that's a paper by Lars Hemkins and John Ioannidis, if I recall correctly. So that should also be accounted for or taken with a grain of salt. But of course, all things being equal, Better not to be hospitalized, better not to have a stroke, better not to have an MI. The way to capture the morbidity of that is a health-related quality of life assessment. The way to capture the mortality of that is overall survival. Many clinical trials in oncology still run a randomized trial with the primary endpoint of response rate. Well, that's a measure of tumor shrinkage. It's not a time-to-event endpoint. It can occur at any time thereafter. um, And it's just looking at the fraction of people who achieved a response at some point. Those are surrogates. It's important when you run a randomized control trial to think about whether or not you're using a surrogate endpoint or clinical endpoint. The other thing to think about is whether or not what you're using is an objective endpoint or a subjective endpoint, okay? So an objective endpoint is something like PFS. You can measure it. It's an objective endpoint, something like overall survival. They're an objective endpoint. A subjective endpoint is how somebody feels or functions. It's their pain score. It's their score on a uh, scale for rheumatoid arthritis. Subjective endpoints are notoriously prone to the placebo response. If you're using a subjective endpoint like how bad does your knee hurt, and you're doing an intervention like debridement of a knee, you're going to want to have a control arm that's as close to the intervention as possible, except omitting the relevant clinical step. So if you think sanding down that cartilage is the relevant clinical step, you do everything but sand down the cartilage and you tell the patient you sanded down the cartilage to separate the sanding of the cartilage from the poking the patient, anesthetizing the patient, telling them to put this brace on and take it easy for two, three days. All that is part of the therapeutic procedure, the placebo effect of the procedure, but only the part where you debride the cartilage or sand it down. I'm using that as a simplicity sake, that's the part you think has the key value. And so a sham control study of something like debridement uh, or washout could separate the true effect from the placebo effect. I think that when it comes to objective endpoints, like overall survival, you know, arguably open label could be okay. If you do an open label study of a new drug versus the drug you're already using, and there's a huge overall survival benefit, I think many people will say that's okay because we don't think that the placebo effect can affect a bias-resistant objective endpoint like overall survival. I think that's a fair summary. I'll make one more point, one more carve-out, that among objective endpoints, there are bias-resistant ones like overall survival, and there are bias-susceptible ones like blood pressure. This is a great example Daryl Francis uses He says, if you do a randomized control trial, and let's say you hypothetically know that somebody's getting a procedure that is supposed to you know, ablate the renal artery nerves or renal artery denervation or something like that. This was one of the original studies he cites as an example. And you know that they got the procedure versus not getting the procedure. And when you're in clinic and you take their blood pressure thereafter, you might be more likely to, "Mm, let's just check that one more time in the person who had the procedure because you think their blood pressure should be lower versus the person who didn't have the procedure because you would expect their blood pressure to be the same. So somebody's baseline blood pressure is like 160 over 80. They come for follow up. It's 160 over 80 and they didn't get the procedure. You'd say, yeah, it's probably the case. It's not going to change that much, but if they got the procedure and you think in your mind, it might make a difference, you say, you know what? Maybe let will give them a minute and just check it again. And then it's 156 over 74 and you put that in the chart this is a bias susceptible endpoint because the doctor's knowledge and expectation is clouding their reporting of the endpoint in the chart. And that's a little bit of a different class of endpoint than a truly bias resistant endpoint like overall survival. I think in this space of endpoints, there's a famous study, I think of uh, Caplicism for TTP. And this is a drug that of in, in, that in my opinion, it doesn't alter the fundamental pathophysiology of TTP. Uh, thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, TTP, but it does liberate platelets and platelets go up. And so a primary endpoint of the study that looks at platelets going up, which is a surrogate endpoint, will show they go up faster. But a clinical endpoint might be how long are you in the hospital getting pheresis, getting plex? And the answer to that might be shorter. But is it shorter because we've changed the biology of the disease in a favorable way? Or is it shorter because we've changed the platelet number and the doctor is using the platelet number to decide how much plex to give you? And so it is a bias susceptible endpoint because the surrogate is affecting how long we're delivering the plex. And in a paper we wrote with Jenny Gill called the EMR glitch experiment, we hypothesize a randomized trial where you take patients with TTP and you randomize them to an EMR glitch or no glitch. And the glitch is whatever their platelets are, it adds 20 to it. And if that glitch will give you the exact same clinical manifestations as the therapeutic drug, then you don't have an endpoint that's objective, bias-resistant. You have only endpoints that may be objective. Days of is objective. It's not something you feel. It's something that we can document, but it is bias-susceptible, and it's actually conditioned on the doctor's knowledge of what the platelets are. Okay, that's getting into the weeds. Okay, now we're getting deep into the endpoints, but really a good understanding of what you want to impact Always remember what the core values are of medicine. People live longer, live better. Then remember what you're actually measuring or what the study purports to measure. And then you need to think that depending on what they're measuring, you know, you might need more careful consideration of the control arm, more careful consideration of the design, more careful consideration of the power calculation, et cetera. Surrogates. I think it's worth saying very briefly that in addition to progression free survival being arbitrary that doesn't preclude the fact that it could have a very tight correlation with overall survival. In other words, drugs that improve PFS one month or two months or three months or has a ratio 0.9 or 0.8 or 0.7 go on to improve overall survival commensurately in the long-term follow-up of randomized controlled trials. And there's a whole genre of the literature called surrogate validation. And there's a type of validation called a type one or trial level validation, which basically takes every randomized trial done in a space And on one axis, it plots the change in the surrogate. And in the other axis, it plots the change in the hard endpoint. Each dot is one trial and it literally performs regression, which is asking the question. Let's just take the R squared, which is the coefficient of determination. It's literally asking the question, what percent of the variability in the hard outcome is explained or captured by variability in the surrogate outcome? And a surrogate outcome that captures nearly all of the variability in the heart outcome, well, that's a surrogate outcome you can hang your hat on. You know that drugs that improve the surrogate on average, improve the heart outcome, but drugs that are for conditions where the surrogate has a very weak correlation with overall survival, you can't hang your hat on that surrogate because even a surrogate that's improved may not correspond with an improvement in living longer, living better. So we see over and over in the oncology literature that weak surrogates, unvalidated surrogates, are used. When you do the validation study, you don't want to just regress randomized trials that are published or given to the FDA. The FDA has a whole genre of literature where they just regress the trials that were sent to them. That's pretty stupid, actually. It's pretty stupid. You want to look at published, unpublished, and trials that may be not reported. The gray literature. You want to look at all the trials that are relevant, not just the convenience sample of things people send to the FDA, because a correlation that's true in a convenience sample might not be true in the global sample. You really want the broader collection of studies. The correlations you derive are only applicable to the classes of drugs you look at and the settings you look at it. They're not applicable to other classes. So a DFS OS correlation in non-small cell lung cancer that's true for cytotoxics, not going to be true for targeted necessarily, and may not be true for immunotherapy, which has different properties. And we have some papers on that forthcoming. Okay. All this is to say, some surrogates do have pretty decent validation. Hypertension for long-term cardiovascular outcomes has decent validation as a surrogate, and some correlations of PFS and OS are decent particularly DFS, cytotoxic lung colon. That's pretty decent with OS Endpoint um, matters a great deal. And we should never confuse drugs that improve surrogates for drugs that improve things that people actually care about because surrogates don't always correlate with what people feel because they're arbitrary and surrogates also don't always correlate with how long they live because surrogate validation coefficients may be weak. All right, let's talk about superiority, non-inferiority equivalence. There's really two broad classes of randomized control trials. There's superiority studies where you come in and you say my new treatment or my new strategy is going to be 10 percentage points better than the old strategy by 12 months, or it's going to be 15 percentage points better than the old strategy. And in a superiority trial, you power your trial for some delta or some difference in some outcome. And you basically try to prove that your new drug is superior. One of the things to note is that as you postulate bigger differences, the sample size decreases to the square power of the difference. So a doubling in sample size means that you can cut your sample, uh, sorry, doubling in postulated effect means you can quarter your sample size and have the same power. Okay, It's to the square. So actually people are always complaining that, you know, how are we going to randomize all these people? If what you're saying is true, This intervention works so damn good. The effect size is so big. You don't need a lot of people to see that. But the truth is you don't really believe that. And that's why you need a lot of people to show it because you think at best your intervention is pretty marginal, but that's not good. You know, that's not good if it's really marginal. If it's so marginal, the trial is unethical. I mean, this is a genre that, this is something that you know. I don't think I say enough is that many times you can look at the power calculation and you know that even if we achieve everything we've set out to achieve, we are going to have a marginal drug. You know that from the outset. So why even run this study? If you're not going to be improving survival by some basic benchmarks like ASCO and ESMO meaningful benefit, why are you even running the study? Why are you looking for mediocrity? And the answer is, of course, you get a few billion dollars. Okay. So that's the superiority design. I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, I guess there's take a detour for a second. Let's just mention what is the P value? It's, Always gotten wrong. I mean, I think people mostly get it wrong. I've rarely heard anyone say what it is correctly. In the last video, I had to fix the microphone too. Now, the microphone, yet again, drooping, drooping microphone. Unacceptable. What is the p value? Well, p value is not the probability that, uh, you know, the null hypothesis is true or false, or the alternative hypothesis is true or false, whatever these people want to say, the p-value is simple. It assumes the null is true. Assuming that we're sampling from the same distribution, assuming that we're sampling, literally taking these two groups and the therapeutic effect is zero, what's the probability I would have seen this result or a more extreme result? That's all it's saying. It's not telling you The probability, a p-value of 0.05 doesn't tell you there's a 95% chance your drug works. It just tells you that if you were really drawing from a random distribution, you would just be seeing this result or more extreme result 5% of the time, if that's what you're getting, p of 0.05. Now it's important to know that because the probability you're finding is true or false is in part related to the alpha level or p-value. It's also in part related to the study power, and it's also in part related to the ratio of true effects to false effects in the field. I mean, are you in a business where you're always coming up with winners? Or are you in a business where true winners are few and far between and fleeting? And is the pretest probability high? Or is it very low? And honestly, in cancer drug development, it's often very, very low. And so if you think about a field where, let's say for instance, let's just take small cell lung cancer, In extended-state small-cell lung cancer, we have randomized controlled trials of Dravalumab survival benefit, Atezolizumab survival benefit. But Pembro and Nevo, nope, 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 nope. You know, when you start to see patterns like that, you really have to wonder, is this an efficacious class of drugs, or did they just get lucky in two studies? I mean, you really do have to start to wonder about that. Um, I think that's all I'll say about this for now. We can talk more about it. Maybe we'll talk about Bill Cap someday. Um, Non-inferiority is a different type of study design. Equivalence is a subset of non-inferiority. Non-inferiority is basically asking, is my intervention arm no worse than some pre-specified amount or delta of the control arm? So you have a blood thinner and you want to know, is my new blood thinner no worse than 5% worse than Coumadin or something like that? You have to pre-specify the margin and the game that's played in non-inferiority is that they pick a margin so big you can parallel park a school bus in it. And of course, if that's how big the parallel spot is, anyone can parallel park a car. The margin is very permissive, so that means you're going to conclude non-inferiority. But non-inferiority is asking, is my new drug no worse than some pre-specified amount? And equivalence is just non-inferiority on steroids. It's The pre-specified amount is something very tight, like less than a 2% difference, 5% difference, something very tight where you can say not only is it non-inferior, it is so close that we're going to consider it for all practical purposes equivalent. So the only way to really sort of philosophically show that a new treatment is not even one bit worse than the older treatment, to really show it's not even one bit worse than the older treatment, you've got to prove it's superior. Actually, ironically, you got to prove it's superior. All right. There's some work we've done on non-inferiority by Allison Haslam, where we've looked at all the oncology non-inferiority studies. As you'd expect, they pick margins so big you can park a school bus in it. As you'd expect, rates of non-inferiority are super, super high. The other thing about non-inferiority, in order to even run a non-inferiority study, you need to satisfy the ethical prerequisite of a non-inferiority study. Your new drug has to offer some advantage over the old drug. It has to be cheaper, or it has to be more convenient to give, or it has to be less toxic. If it's more expensive, more inconvenient, and has the same or worse toxicities, how do you justify any loss of efficacy? You have no advantage to justify a loss of efficacy. You ought not have even run a non-inferiority study. It should have been superiority or bust. So guess what? Lenva, Lenvantinib and HCC, are you any cheaper? No. Are you any less toxic? No. And are you more convenient? No. So should you have gotten away with a non-inferiority study? Hell no. And guess what? in oral contraceptive literature, we moved from the oral contraceptive to a depot injection because it was universally believed that a depot shot is more convenient than having to remember to take a pill. And I'm sympathetic to that view when it comes to even some anti-schizophrenic medicines, the same logic applies. But when it comes to relugolix, we're gonna go from something I can dose somebody Q3 months into something that I'm dosing a daily pill it's, it's and just as costly, no increased convenience, and just as toxic, and I'm gonna accept non-inferiority design? What are you talking about? Get out of here, Relugalix. Okay, so you have to have some justification for non-inferiority. Often in our paper by Haslam, you can go check, I forget the percent off the top of my head. I think it's double digits. People didn't even justify why they're using non-inferiority. All right. So that's superiority. The p-value is, of course, assuming the null. I'm reaching into the same M&M jar, and I'm, draw, I'm getting a handful of M&Ms, and I'm saying, how many yellows do I have? How many yellows do I have? What's the probability I would have seen this difference or more extreme difference? It's not actually telling you the probability that the alternative hypothesis is true or false. That's the p-value fallacy. Um, surrogate endpoints don't always measure what people care about. Often they don't. Clinical, end, clinical, um, clinical endpoints do. There are bias-resistant, bias-susceptible endpoints, and the more bias-susceptible you are, the more blinding you'll want. The more suri- the more subjective endpoint you are, the more blinding, even sham control you'll need. Um, those are some key takeaway points there. Let's talk for a minute about crossover. Uh, I'm going to confine my analysis to oncology because I'm not going to get into psychiatric drugs and crossover because it's very different. Psychiatry has short-term reversible endpoints you can have people take SSRI or placebo, and then when some period of time elapses, you can have them wash out and take the one that they didn't take before. Um, whereas in oncology, we have a series of irreversible endpoints, and those endpoints, once you cross that Rubicon, that first progression, you know, you're know, you not going to be coming back to that. So I want to talk for a minute about crossover in the context of oncology clinical trials. I think it's perpetually misunderstood. It's misunderstood in cobrake 200. It's misunderstood with Cipalucil T. I think I've done exclusive videos on crossover but the gist of what I want to say is the following I'll be very brief there are situations in oncology where you want crossover you need it you desperately want it and there are situations where you don't want it you don't need it please god don't have it and you can also get it or not get it so you can imagine a four by four table you want it and you get it that's good you don't want it you don't get it that's good but you want it and you don't get it that's bad and you don't want it, you get it that's bad so let's talk about a situation where you don't want it. You don't want it in trials that are fundamentally measuring the efficacy of a novel product. So let's take CIPT, Provenge, the anti-cancer vaccine. This is a product that is the only uh, therapeutic cancer vaccine ever approved. It has a 0% response rate. You shoot people with prostate cancer with this vaccine, you're going to get zero responses in a randomized controlled trial in the New England Journal of Medicine. They randomized people with castor-resistant prostate cancer, low volume, asymptom- uh, minimally symptomatic to Provenge or placebo-Provenge injection. They measured the PFS, there's no difference in PFS, they looked for response rates, there's no difference in response rate. When the group of people who were initially assigned the saline injection progressed, they received salvage, frozen Provenge, they were chronicle crossed over. When the group of people that initially got Provenge progressed, they received docetaxel, which is the standard of care therapy. When the control arm progressed a second time, then they started to get some docetaxel on board. So what you see is there's two things to this randomized trial. There's a trial of cipleucel tea or placebo, and there's also a trial of early docetaxel or late docetaxel. I'm going to pause and fix this microphone, which is irritating me. I'm back. You see, these microphones are attached to stands that have a spring-loaded tension, and anyway, I won't bore you with it, but the damn thing is slipping, and that's irritating when you're trying to make a point. Okay, so what was I saying about Provenge? All right, I lost my train of thought. I was saying, okay, so now we have a randomized control trial with Crossover, but did we want it or didn't want it? And the answer is, we've got a product with a 0% response rate, it's got no improvement in PFS against saline injection, but it happened to squeak out an overall survival benefit from something like 22 to 26 months in that Provenge study, a four-month OS benefit. But it's not just a randomized trial of Provenge versus no Provenge, oh, no siree. It's a randomized trial of Provenge versus saline injection. When you progress on saline, you get frozen Provenge. And when you progress a second time, then you get docetaxel. And I found this example many years ago and I started to write about it in hardwired bias, et cetera. And it's beautiful in the sense that It's a great example where it's very likely the Provenge is doing literally nothing, and the reason people are living longer on the Provenge arm is the early receipt of docetaxel, which is also given at a higher percentage. And that's, in fact, also the conclusion of the AHRQ. And so this is a great example of where you don't want crossover because you're trying to establish the fundamental efficacy of the product. Let's take an example of where you do want crossover, Keynote 48. Keynote 48 is, PEMBRO cisplatin-5-FU versus extreme regimen, which is the cetuximab cisplatin-5-FU. And in Keynote 48, it was a randomized controlled trial of which at least some of the endpoints, and let's not say the primary, has a very complicated hierarchical endpoint structure. Actually, that's something somebody wanted me to talk about on this. How do you apportion alpha when you have co- complex, uh, multiple primary endpoints, and how do you do daisy-chain primary endpoints, hierarchical analysis? I guess I'll come to that. Um, I, I don't normally spend too much time teaching that because I think that very rarely is that the rub. Like usually the rub is the control arm quality and crossover and things like that. Um, we'll finish the crossover discussion. Okay, so by the time Keynote 48 was being run, there was some big news in head and neck Cancer which was that for patients with second line, head and neck squamous cell cancer, pembrolizumab outperformed dealer's choice chemotherapy. Of course, it wasn't a true dealer's choice, but let's put that aside, okay, it was three drugs. Okay, but Pembroverse chemotherapy, second line, head and neck squamous cell cancer, overall survival benefit, New England Journal. We all change our practice instantly. We would give either platinum doublet or extreme or something upfront. The moment patients progressed, we'd give them pembrolizumab. Of course, that was what I was doing personally in clinic at that time. Enter Keynote 48, a randomized control trial of PEMBRO versus Platinum 5-FU or Cetuximab, Platinum 5-FU. If you progress on Cetuximab and Platinum 5-FU, what should you get second? PEMBRO, because that's the standard of care at the time, okay? For most of the time, the study was run. And what was delivered in very poor percentages post-progression? PEMBRO. They didn't give enough PEMBRO second line. And so it's a trial of PEMBRO Platinum Doublet versus Cetuximab Platinum Doublet with inadequate post-protocol care. And yes, it reaches a lot of conclusions about OS. And yes, there are different analyses by PDL1 levels. And yes, they use a nested PDL1 cutoff rather than an adjacent. Okay, we'll talk about all those in future ones. Yes, 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 yes. Those are all problems. But the biggest problem I see is I still don't know if the routine upfront application of pembrolizumab is superior to withholding it and giving it second. I don't know that for Javelin 100 bladder or Javelin 100 renal. I don't know that for all the Axi-Pembro-Clear, the update-Clear analysis they published. I don't know that for Keynote 177. I don't know in many of these settings where checkpoint inhibitor was already the second-line therapy because it had shown, conclusive benefits in the second line setting, whether the routine upfront application is superior to second line use because the trialists did a shit job and making sure the control arm got it a prompt progression. Why did they do a shit job? They did it because the trial was running globally. They go to countries where they're not going to give it second line. They do that. I think because they know they're going to win. They know they're going to win by doing that. But what they do is they have a trial that's uninformative to everybody. Doesn't help us in this country because it doesn't show the new treatment is better than what we're already doing. And it doesn't help them in the global settings because the moment the trial's over, they can't afford the Pembro and they couldn't afford the Pembro for second line before the trial began. So they're not going to be able to afford the Pembro. It's an exploitative practice. In a hundred years from now, I have no doubt in my mind that medical ethicists will say these trials were disgusting, just like we can go back a hundred years, and I can think of a few studies that we view as disgusting. They're gonna view these studies as disgusting. They know what's going on. It's rich countries exploiting poor countries to get regulatory approval in rich countries in trials that don't actually apply to the patients in those rich countries. It's crazy. Anyway, the crossover principle. The principle is when a drug has proven benefit in a latter line, you have to have crossover because you want to test if the routine upfront use or your new therapy is superior over giving it a second or delaying it. And enter Codebreak 200. I mean, Codebreak 200 has crossover. The problem is, it wasn't an established drug. I mean, all we knew about it was it had a response rate, which won that great, and a shitty DOR has a shitty DOR and a response rate that's not that great. It was initially run as a trial without crossover with primary endpoint of OS, so it would be the first test of efficacy of the product. But then they crossed everyone over and they have the sample size, and then they have a shit sandwich on their hands. They've got 16% attrition in the control arm, which is the topic of the last video. Too Too much dropout. Then they've got a useless primary endpoint of PFS. They have a meager difference in PFS statistically significant but not clinically meaningful 1.5 months. You've got some trialists saying that you should look at the hazard ratio. Misunderstanding hazard ratios, again, topic of the first video. And you have a misuse of crossover, an abuse of crossover. You should have been crossing people over. Now you've muddied the water, actually. And if your drug is actually deleterious, I don't know that either. You do have a few grade 5 AEs that uh, you got some splaining to do. I mean, you do. Okay. So crossover, it's very important. Whenever you read a study, you got to ask yourself, okay, whatever the setting is, what would you give the control arm? Okay, we're coming to that. And what they should get second, and are they doing that in the study? I think Echelon 1 is a great example, you know. A A V D versus A B V D, but when somebody progresses on A B V D, what do I give them? I give them some A etc. Okay, what percent of those people are getting etc. A- what percent of people are getting salvage chemo? What are they getting? And I will tell you, if you go to the supplementary appendix of that trial. The numbers don't add up. They don't make a lick of sense. Then you can go look at the correspondence where Olivier and myself write to the authors and say, these numbers don't add up. And then you can look at the authors say, we fixed the table, but they still don't make sense. That still, still does not add up. So don't go around saying ECHELON 1 proves this has a better OS unless you look at that. Now, of course, post-progression therapy will not affect progression, but it will affect downstream endpoints. All right, I'm gonna just talk about control arms. I'm gonna leave drug dosing for another day and multiplicity for another day and some of these other topics for another day. Control arms. The control arm of the randomized control trial has to be what you are doing in your clinic for somebody outside of the trial. We were not in the business of letting people be randomized to ibrutinib or chlorambucil for CLL. That was a really egregious trial. We were not in the business of letting people get nivolumab versus carbazine in 2013, rather than IPI. We weren't giving a lot of decarbazine. That was an unethical study. And we see over and over uh, Boston, Selly Velcade Dex versus Velcade Dex for people who've already gotten Velcade and some of whom post-progression get Velcade Dex. Are you shitting me? Boston is a study where the control arm is never actually given in Boston. It's delinquent. I try not to exaggerate how frustrating this is, but an unethical control arm is really, again, it's just a crime against the patients on the control arm. If you wouldn't give that to your own father, if you would withdraw your father from the control arm, then you've really got to ask yourself, what the hell are you doing? Cobra 200 has this, by the way, actually, because docetaxel rameocerumab has a survival benefit over docetaxel alone, and yet they had docetaxel alone as the control arm. And so this is omnipresent. I think the ones that get me lately are, you know, they're doing like Me Too, semiplomab, chemo versus chemo alone in non-small cell lung cancer after we've known for so long that Pembroke chemo has improved outcomes since the Seema Gandhi paper. Sorry, Lena Gandhi, Lena Gandhi. Is it Seema Gandhi or Lena Gandhi? Monica Gandhi's sister and I forget her first name. Oops, sorry about that. I don't think Monica Gandhi who I like, and a friend of mine here at UCSF. I don't think she's listening, so okay. I will I will admit that I screwed that up. I forgot Gandhi's first name. Gandhi et al. Let's just say Keynote 189 Gandhi et al. Okay, let's just say that. Um, we knew that. So how are you justifying going and doing the next Me Too drug with this shitty control arm? I really hate the control arm issue, you know, from Waldenstrom's to... Um, uh, oh, what was that, Ivocidinib, the agile Ivocidinib, AZA versus AZA only, when ven has the data. And I'm so sick of, oh, oh, what about, um? oh, my favorites, uh, the maintenance studies. Um, Ixazomib versus observation. When everyone, and everybody whose name's on that paper is giving rev maintenance. I mean, get out of here. And Mani has written a really nice thing in Sensible Medicine about this. The control arm has to be what you're giving in your clinic. It can't be delinquent. And of course, you know it's obvious why you would want a delinquent control arm because it's easier to win, but it's not informative. And I always tell fellows, a trial can only change your practice if the control arm is your practice. All right, so I think we've covered p-value, equipoise, I didn't have p-value on my list, non-inferiority, the justification, equivalence, superiority, Surrey control arm crossover. There's more to talk about post protocol care, multiplicity, drug dosing, dose reductions. I think there's a lot to talk about there. We have another paper under review there. Um, What's the broader point here? The broader point is that, of course, not every randomized trial is a good randomized trial. Of course. and then the next thing is, are there really good randomized trials? Yeah, of course there are. HD10, Hodgkin's, okay? Go look it up, go look at the Germans. Okay, they've done some good fucking studies, okay? So yes, there are good randomized control trials. All of us who practice medicine, we have to use randomized control trials and there are some uh, rectal cancer, or sorry, anal cancer mitomycin, good randomized study, okay? There are good randomized control trials. Um, Some of the adjuvant colon cancer trials, good. Dynamic, not so good. Okay, not so good, I've done a video on that. But, Many randomized trials, particularly in the modern age where their incredible profits at stake, are run very poorly. They're not really informative. And they prey upon the fact that people are not going to be critical of randomized controlled trials, in part because they may not know these things, and two, also in part because they're being bribed by the companies through dinners and CMEs and, and consulting payments and and continued trial support at their institutions. And so those are reasons why people are reluctant to speak out. Not being, just being a randomized trial doesn't mean, just, let me say it again, just being a randomized trial doesn't mean you're a good randomized trial. And you need to have good endpoints, good blinding, good concealment, good control arms, appropriate use of crossover. These are things that will make something a good randomized trial. But not being a randomized trial is usually horseshit. I mean, I think people always say, oh, randomized trials don't apply to every person. Well, your observational study is not giving you a causal estimate, okay? It's giving you a confounded estimate. So what are you even talking about, okay? That's the other thing I'll say about it. I'll end end this randomized trial with this discussion. There are idealized and pragmatic randomized trials. If you are talking about efficacy, which is how well does something perform under ideal circumstances, you're often using an idealized randomized control trial where the patients are Olympians and they have perfect liver function and they're 10 years younger than the stated age. And those results are always going to diminute or diminish as you go to like the real world. And we've seen that with Seraph and bit, et cetera, et cetera. So, okay, that's an efficacy randomized control trial. People say observational literature looks at how people do in the real world and it gives you a measure of effectiveness, which is how well do therapies perform in the real world. But there's an alternative. The Pragmatic Randomized Control Trial, the randomized trial where there just ain't a lot of inclusion criteria, where you're randomizing most of the people to the intervention or not. And this has happened with TASTE in the Netherlands of mechanical aspiration of the thrombus post-MI. It's happened with recovery for COVID. You're randomizing the majority of people in a registration-based, pragmatic, randomized trial. And those point estimates you're getting, and those covariate-adjusted estimates you're getting, really do apply to lots of people. I think Frank Harrell has done some nice work on how can you covariate adjust the estimate to the person in front of you and have some sense on average for someone like this, what benefits might they expect? So my point here is that randomized control trials for all their faults are, I think, eminently superior to these primitive ways of knowing that are inaccurate. I mean, that's really what retrospective analyses, observational studies are. Um, and the burden is on Miguel Hernan to prove that target trial is superior. He's not yet proven that. But just because you're randomized doesn't mean you can't be gamed. And in fact, most are gamed. And in a field where we're making 150 bills a year, billion dollars a year off cancer drugs, and you're letting the companies that make the products design and conduct and report the studies, think about how crazy that is. That would be like I proctored my own SATs. You know what I mean? I'm proctoring my own SAT. I'm the company. I can design and conduct my own study. Except when I proctor my SAT, the best I can do is go to like a good university. When they proctor their SAT, the best they can do is make $10 billion or $12 billion, which is the median life cycle earnings of cancer drugs. Check out, um, I think a paper by T.O. Tao, WHO, JAMA Network Open 2014-ish, something like that. Um, Or check out the paper by Prasad Mylan cody which is JAMA Internal Medicine 2017 Revenue and Earnings uh, Post-Development of a Drug Among Companies that Only Have Brought One Drug to Market, something like that. Uh, We looked at that and we found maybe something like seven bills, seven billion dollars, but that was early in life cycle. That was only the first four years. Okay, that's a lot to know. Um, Pragmatic trials. So the thing I want to leave you with is that you have to be critical of randomized trials because going forward, we can do them better. They will be done better. Whether or not any of these idiots who disagree with me decide to change their thinking in our lifetime, doesn't matter one lick. As time moves on, we will do better studies because somebody will eventually get sick of this fleecing of America that's occurring with bad randomized control trials and letting the companies run their own studies. They're gonna obviously, the obvious solution, make impartial bodies design and conduct the studies. That's the obvious solution. And we're gonna work on it and over the long arc of human history of science, if we are to progress, we're gonna make improvements in randomized trials. Yet randomized trials are much better than alternatives, particularly for causal inference around the efficacy of products. But we have to be vigilant and we have to point out these flaws. And participating in studies with flaws does not make you a hero. I won't be congratulating you on your first author medical writer publication. I'll be gunning for you. And I think that history will be gunning for you too. And you always have to imagine, I mean, there is a long history of medical trials and you can go and look back and you can think about who were the heroes from 50 years ago and who were the people who stood in the way of progress and ask yourself which side you're on. And I guarantee you that the long arc of medical history will bend towards better, more unbiased, larger, adequately powered, randomized trials with good control arms, appropriate crossover, the use of non-inferiority when appropriate, but the use of superiority otherwise, um, uh, uh skewed randomization only when it actually makes sense not as a as a as a theatrical tool uh, proper blinding proper concealment that sort of stuff that's the way we're going to bend and so you can you can play all the games you want with your covid masking but people will know with a little more time we're already halfway there a little more time people're going to know you're wrong for not running any randomized trials and just because you run a randomized trial doesn't mean you get uh, all the stickers uh you get one sticker and if you start to improve all these elements you'll get more stickers so that's it for randomized trials. Part two. Part 3 we'll come back drug dosing multiplicity, I think you'll like um, maybe some of the more technical topics. Um, maybe we can talk about covariate adjustment versus no covariate adjustment. Honestly, one has more power than the other. But if it's not pre specified, you know, you can go Fuck yourself. I mean, I think it's pretty useless if it's not pre-specified. Uh, uh, but you know, otherwise, I like to covariate. But if you covariate it just after the fact, okay, I'm going to have some problems with that. Um, maybe we could talk about O'Brien-Fleming stopping boundary, multiple looks at data. Uh, we could talk about apportioning alpha, and we could talk about hierarchical testing, and we can talk about that boondoggle of uh, I think it was batrixaban a few years ago. Uh, we'll a lot to talk about. Randomized trials, fun topic. Okay, fun topic. One of my favorites. All right. And on that positive note, what can you do? Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, why, why would you be? Watching, why would you be watching 40 minutes of, of this topic? I'd be totally shocked if you made it this far. If you're listening to the plenary session podcast feed, what you want to do, you want to go to developdrugs.substack.com. You want to go to developdrugs.substack.com. You want to become a subscriber. This is going to give you more clinical trials knowledge than anything else. I mean, there's, if you always ask, what's the book? To there's no good book. There's no good book. We're working on something like a real course, but there's no good book. Um, This is going to give you all that. You're going to get like bulletins about like breaking approvals. And once we start getting into conferences, you know, we're going to get into the early phase stuff and do some analysis there. It's going to be really kind of exciting. And I think that, um, you know, eventually uh, all the topical, uh, boring COVID issues are going to blow over and we're going to be left with these sorts of questions going forward. So, The printer is telling me it's time to be done. All right. On that positive note, leave a a review. Subscribe to that Develop Drug Substack. Um, Leave a comment. Like, subscribe, comment. Tell a friend. Send this to a friend. And um, until next time.